This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Good morning, God First. It's such a, a joy to be together. I, I turn around during the worship as I, as I often do. Please don't get unnerved when I do that. That's just me enjoying us being together. That's not me taking names or anything like that. Um, and I, I just couldn't help but tear up just thinking these, these are God's people. Um, so... We are going to continue our series this morning through uh, the book of Acts. And uh, if you spotted on the WhatsApp group, we did ask that. Yeah, it is bouncing. Um, we did ask that uh, in preparation for this morning, if you could find the time to read Acts 6 and 7, that'll help because we're kind of building everything on those two chapters. And they are, in and of themselves, a 20 minute read. Um, so we are not going to read them all together this morning. They will be behind me as we kind of just talk about them um, to try and give context and a bit of explanation, but it's going to be uh, a bit of a, a rush. So if you haven't read it yet, I would so encourage you. Acts 6 and 7 is one of those passages, let me be slightly honest with you, I've probably, I, I kind of skip them because... Because I know shame on me. It's like, it's, it's one of those arbitrary, weird sort of, if, if you don't dig in, if you don't do the work with it, it just feels the sad ramblings of a crazy guy who's about to get stoned. Like, that's what it sounds like. It doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense. And so, one of the joys for me out of this process, and hopefully out of all of, or for all of us out of this process, is that our hearts are continue, uh, continue to be moved by not just the sad ramblings of a soon-to-die guy, but actually very deep, profound, thoughtful, God-inspired words. This is one of the speeches that builds the church, that lays a foundation, and that sets a trajectory for the early church from here on. So... Uh, I just want to, again, add my uh, encouragement. If you haven't connected to the WhatsApp group, lots of stuff goes on there, in invitations, notices, information, little videos. Uh, please, you can just scan. You can wait. Um, at the end of the meeting, we've got the loops of the different notices. You can literally scan the QR code, and boom, you're in there. Great. So let's go to Acts chapter 6. And what we, we, we start off with this interesting position where the church seems to start experiencing its first division. There, there's, there seems to be perceived discrimination between the Hellenists, who are the Greek-speaking Jews from all over the, the sort of Greek world, and the Hebrew-speaking Jews, particularly when it comes to, to the distribution of food to the widows. And 
so the, the solution that's decided upon, rather than getting the, the 12 uh, apostles in the church to do more, um, is actually they decide to select seven of the very best to serve the distribution of the food to all the widows. Now, what's interesting is that all seven the names are Hellenist names. They're Greek names. They're not actually Hebrew names. So I think that's fascinating in trying to bring a balance to the serving of the Hellenists and the Jews. Actually, they, I, I think purposefully they just choose the seven best, most suitable people for the role. They're not playing politics. They're not trying to like overplay it or underplay it. They just go for the best, and these are them. And we read in the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, and we will appoint, uh, whom we will appoint to this duty. And we never hear about five of those names again. They just vanish into history. But Luke picks up on two of them. In further in the book of Acts. We hear now about Stephen and later about Philip the Evangelist. And wonderfully, the impact of appointing these seven leaders, uh, we read in verse 7 that the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Isn't that wonderful? And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Seems a bit of a throwaway phrase, the priests. Let's see. Stephen seems to have continued as a preacher, particularly in the synagogue of the freedmen. So this is one of the synagogues that's dedicated to the Greek-speaking, the Hellenists, the Hellenist Jews in Jerusalem. And he must have been a leader, a, uh, a speaker there in this particular synagogue. And we read that it's made up of freed slaves and their families from the Greek-speaking regions like Cyrene, Cilicia, which is where Antioch is, um, Alexandria, and then all over modern-day Turkey. And another reason why we think that he was one of the preachers in this particular synagogue and leaders there is Luke mentions this many priests becoming obedient to the faith. And it's very likely that these priests were those that interacted with the Hellenists. Chief among them is Stephen. And uh, they become influential, and we see them coming to faith. And it seems from the accusations that are then made against Stephen that he was preaching and teaching in this synagogue of the freedmen the same things that Jesus had been teaching and been accused of teaching, namely speaking against the temple and against the law of Moses. We know that Jesus said that not a stone would remain on top of one another in the temple and he would rebuild it again in three days, right? And we know that to this he meant the bodily resurrection. And he also Rather than destroying the law, Jesus taught that he came to fulfill the law. No dot or yot or tittle would be lost from the law. So some of the leaders we read in this synagogue rose up 
and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So round one, Stephen wins, okay? Boom, one nil. Then we are told, this is where it gets dirty, they secretly instigated men who lie against Stephen. And he is seized, and these false witnesses then lay the most serious of accusations. Now, I know in our world, speaking against the temple or speaking against uh, the law of Moses, yeah, whatever. No, actually, that was the most serious cause for blasphemy. And the same charges that Jesus was charged with. I think this will just keep dripping down all the way through, the same as Jesus. We read that Stephen's face shone with holiness and the presence of the Lord. And we can't but help ask ourselves, where have we seen this before? Stephen is then, according to the process of proper law, asked to give a defense of himself. And Jesus, Jesus at this point, when he was asked to give a defense, he chose to remain silent. Stephen does it. Stephen defends himself. And pretty much all of chapter 7 is Stephen's courtroom dialogue, where he is defending himself against the accusations of blasphemy, against these two most holy things, the law and the temple. And Stephen's defense against uh, his accusation of blasphemy against the law goes something like this. Israel had consistently rejected those whom God had sent to save them. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him into slavery. But we read that, or at least Stephen says that God was with him, right, that phrase, God was with him, and eventually all of Egypt, but more importantly, his fathers and his brothers, who are the patriarchs of the, the faith, the Jewish faith and the 12 tribes, only upon their second visit recognized him as their deliverer. Moses, he goes on, was chosen to be the deliverer of God's people out of slavery in Egypt, but it's only on his second attempt that his own people recognized that God had called him to be their deliverer. Through Moses, God gives the people the law and the covenant, and yet they rejected God and chose instead to make a golden calf and worship it. And of Stephen's final defense point in defense against the law, David Cook in his book teaching... Uh, on Acts, he writes, true to form, the Sanhedrin has now rejected God's righteous one, just as the previous leadership of Israel rejected the prophets. Ironically, the one they've rejected was spoken of by Moses as the prophet. And clearly, they can expect to see him a second time when they will all too latedly, uh, too belatedly recognize them as his recognize him as their deliverer. His argument, or his defense against the argument of blasphemy against the temple and the 
presence of God was that he said Israel had always somehow made idols out of the presence of God, out of the locality of God. They've made an idol out of the temple, he says. He highlights that Isaiah specifically speaks against this, that God cannot be localized, cannot be found only in a building. God has always been on the move with his people, Stephen says, with Abraham in Mesopotamia, with Joseph in Egypt, in the desert with Moses and the people of God. His point is that no golden idol, no tabernacle in the desert, no temple in Jerusalem alone can localize the presence of God since God is everywhere and especially with his people. And even Moses was aware that God couldn't be contained in a building. So, Stephen asks through these responses, if these things are true and God is everywhere and empowers his people and is good and merciful to his people, then who are the actual true blasphemers? Is it Stephen? Or is it those who are accusing him of blasphemy? And Stephen completely and thoroughly turns the tables on his accusers. And the final truths that Stephen aims at the religious leaders after telling them that in their efforts to control God and again make God in their image is that they killed the righteous one. And then... He calls them the same things that God calls the Israelites in the desert who were turning against him. He calls them a stiff-necked and uncircumcised people, effectively calling them as good as unbelievers. And we read that the Jewish leaders are so enraged they're grinding their teeth at them. You can imagine that picture, right? The next step is how Jesus steps in, and he appears to Stephen, who is, again, we read, full of the Spirit. And he sees the Son of Man, Jesus, not sitting at the right hand of God as we read everywhere else in Scripture, but now standing. And some of the commentators would say they're standing as if to, uh, Jesus is standing as if to welcome Stephen and affirm his faith and put strength in him for what is to come. But the Jewish leaders, (laughs) after gnashing their teeth, they can no longer contain their anger. They are so insulted, so frustrated. And so, this final accusation that they had now killed the righteous one, and that Stephen in referring to Jesus, whom he sees standing on the right hand, he he sees him as the Son of Man, which is effectively again calling Jesus the Messiah. They just can't handle it. And they scream, they cover their ears to no longer hear what Stephen is saying. And they rush at him, and they grab him, and they take him outside the city. Where else? Do we hear about being taken outside the city? Who else was taken outside? They begin to stone him. And as they were killing him, we read the same two prayers that Jesus prayed on the cross. 
Lord, receive my spirit, Stephen cries. And, the, and secondly, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Same prayer as Jesus. Lord, forgive them. They don't, do not know what they do. The difference between Stephen's prayer and Jesus' prayer on the cross is, I think, again, another huge source of pain and frustration and anger for the Jewish leaders. Because Jesus' prayer was directed at the Father, which made sense. If you're going to pray, you pray to the Father. Stephen's prayer is directed at the Lord, Jesus Christ, whom he is clearly considering God. So, it's at this point in Acts where Luke quickly, subtly, introduces us to a key young Jewish leader by the name of Saul, whom we will speak more on next week. And then Luke concludes this chapter, and indeed concludes the life of Stephen, with words that so beautifully contrast the horror and the vitriol of this previous chapter as it speaks of quiet, steadfast hope. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This, dear friends, is the painful detailed account of how the first Christian martyr was killed. And there's so much that we can learn from Stephen. I mean, his speech in and of itself is incredible, deeply moving, deeply clever, deeply inspired by God. But I'd like to pick up three points from the passage that I'd like to apply to us today. Firstly, Stephen's character. Secondly, we'll look at Stephen's ownership of the mission of God. And thirdly, very briefly, God's faithfulness, which just drips all the way throughout. So, Stephen is recorded as being a man of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, full of faith and the Holy Spirit, full of grace and power, full of the Holy Spirit. You know, clear than a little... Clearly, Stephen was a remarkable man, and Luke wants us to get that and to understand that. But Luke also writes his account in such a way as to inspire us to want to be more like Stephen, because particularly, I think because Stephen lived actively to try and be more like Jesus. And I I love the words of Paul where he says, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Christ. We all want to imitate Christ, but good, godly, character-filled examples like this, we want to imitate them as well as they imitate Christ. And we see from this reading that in order to maintain the unity in the church, okay, it started getting a bit rumbly, started a bit challenging, and their response was to appoint servants, deacons, right? They don't use the word deacon in this passage, but largely agreed that these seven 
were the first appointed deacons in the church. Philip, Stephen, and five others. And I think it's telling that in order for the church to continue growing in a healthy, sustainable, godly way, they needed to appoint more leaders. More capable, godly people needed to step up. And I don't think that's changed. I think for any church, for particularly for God first, as we want to keep growing and keep being healthy and godly and keep the main thing the main thing, Jesus as our focus, we need to keep godly leaders coming through. So Stephen was a preacher in the synagogue. So he's an accomplished man by all accounts. And, and I couldn't help but ask myself this question. What, what would I have said if they asked me to, hey, drop what you're doing, Apple, and go and wait on tables? I mean, that's a phrase that sounds a bit crass in kind of our modern understanding of things. But hey, drop what you're doing and go and serve the widows in the church. What would I say? I'd probably say, thanks, Peter. Thanks for your offer, but that's not really my thing. That's not my bag, baby. You know, I I think Stephen could have said, hey, Peter, my passions are preaching and leading, man, not waiting on tables. You know, we, we've got this idea that spiritual growth and development and maturity in Christian life and, and what that ministry looks like, what that development looks like. Hey, and Peter, this is not it, buddy. I'm going down. I'm going backwards. I'm not even going sideways. I think our culture teaches us that the more senior we become, the more money maybe we earn, the more important we are or we think we are, the more, in fact, others should serve us, and the less we should do menial tasks like serving, serving in church or serving in my business or serving in my home or my family, certainly not serving food. But Stephen is identified as a man of character, full of God and the Holy Spirit. And it seems that he, like Jesus, understood that the highest form of leadership and success in life is found in going low and serving the very weakest and most vulnerable among us. And because of his Christ-like character, he didn't say, that's not my bag, baby. He gladly accepted and was appointed through the laying on of hands. Nothing about how good he was at other stuff, because we can see he's good at other stuff. We know that he must be gifted in all sorts of things. We read that the, the power of the Spirit moved through him. Miracles were done through him. And I'm sure that Stephen's attitude and Christ-like character stemmed from some of the points that are drawn out of his defense argument. 
God is not limited to a building. His presence is everywhere, and He wants to be known everywhere in every circumstance, which means whether you're serving on a serving team in church, or you're a trustee somewhere, or you're serving your family, or in your workplace, everything we do is to the glory of God, especially waiting on tables for the most needy. With what heart and attitude are we serving God or not serving God? The reality is we can be serving God with a bad attitude. We can do it grumpily. Or we can be not serving God with a good attitude. So, serving or not serving is not so much the question as to the heart with which we do what we do. Because clearly, there are seasons in life where it's appropriate to take a back seat, to just go back and breathe. I see breastfeeding moms and babies and like young children and people wrestling with illness. Like, it's appropriate. Like, yeah. But there are also then times when our pride and our ambitions either keep us from serving God because we're building other idols in our lives and serving other idols, or we drive, we're driven to find our value and identity in other stuff. Sometimes even through serving God, we can try and find our identities. But both Stephen's defense speech would say we're missing God's best when we do that. With what heart and attitude are we serving God or not serving God? And I, I'm, I'm wrestling through stuff at the moment, just in my own life. And, and I found Stephen's life example so helpful in sifting through the, the motivations of the heart because it's helped me distill it down to this one question. What is God asking of me right now? What's God asking me right now, today? And the reality is the answer to that single question is the only thing that we have any control over right now. We can't make our Dreams come true, our passions fulfilled, our ministry desires, our job desires. Nothing is in our control. It's only God who can open and close doors. All we can do is say yes, God, when He speaks and when He calls us. Sometimes that comes through bosses at work saying, hey, would you consider that? Sometimes it comes through our leaders in the church saying, hey, would you consider stepping up into something? Sometimes that comes through our friends spotting something in our life and, and encouraging us into it. Sometimes it comes through a prompting of the Scriptures or a prompting of the Holy Spirit. But always we want this character and steadfast servant-heartedness of Stephen and Jesus 
to be at work in us that says yes when God asks. And if, like me, you, you, you might be struggling. You're like, I don't know what God is asking of me right now. No idea. And there are seasons like that. But wonderfully, God allows us, by His grace, to, be, to put ourselves in the way of Him being able to speak to us. We can choose to not put ourselves in the way of Him being able to speak to us. But actively, we can also choose to put ourselves in the way. How do we do that? Come on, regularly be in the gathered church. Hey? God speaks to us when we're worshiping together. And there are loads of opportunities to serve and to be served. Be in a midweek small group. God speaks to us through our friends there as we look to serve them and are served by them. Be in a three, our groups, small groups of three men or women together where we deeply get to know one another, but we challenge one another and we want God's best for one another and for His kingdom, which is why we spur one another on. Ah, read the Bible. Hey, we say it all the time. It's because it's true. Read the Bible, pray fast, go for walks, purposefully be with God, mindfully be with God. And I put last on the list, get prayed for. Get prayed for. That's why we create space on a Sunday. That's why this, honestly, people sweat and put their backs out to get those seats that are there on the sides out of this front so that you and I can get prayed for. It's not so that I've got space to move around and be all creative. (laughs) Never do that again. Come on, church. Let's get prayed for. God speaks. We can hear from Him when we get prayed for. Stephen's ownership. I can't help but wonder what was it that made Stephen stand up for Jesus to the Jewish leaders the way that he did. Clearly, we know he's a man of character. He's deeply affected by the life and the death of Jesus, but he's equally affected by the resurrection and ascension of Jesus to such an extent that he sees the resurrected and ascended King of Kings standing on the right hand of the Father, waiting for him as he was being stoned. We read that they rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. There seems to be a big hint that Luke gives us in this passage as to what's going on in Stephen's life that allowed him to stand up for Jesus under those conditions. It seems clear that Stephen was Jesus' man. No one is filled with the Spirit and walks with godly wisdom in the way that Stephen does if you're not Jesus' man or woman. Stephen serves humbly like Jesus. Stephen argues about the same things that Jesus argued about. He loved the way that Jesus loved. 
He argued from the scriptures the way that Jesus did. He made the character of Jesus everything in his life. And I want to highlight the love that Jesus had for his church and the people of God. Stephen seemed to have really connected with that in a deep, profound way. Uh, Allow me to let you in on a little secret. I'm one of the elders here at the church, and I want to tell you, I've never felt ready to be an elder or a leader of any kind with any responsibility. There's nothing in me that goes, yeah, I'm ready for this. Boom, bring it on. You're never godly enough. You're never loving enough. You're never good, a, a good enough preacher. You're never a good enough pastor or counselor or ministry team member or leader. You're just never good enough if you're holding that sort of a standard. And yet, there is something supernatural that happens in the heart when you, when you find the grace to put your hand up to be used by God. And something supernatural happens in the Spirit when hands are laid on you and you're appointed by God. That's why when we appoint elders, we lay hands on them and we pray for them. And if we get to the point of appointing deacons, we lay hands on them and pray for them. Because we believe this, that something happens to undeserving Not good enough people when God intervenes. And one of the things that happens, and and what I wager is part of Stephen's incredible story, is that when he and the other six were selected, they agreed to it. They didn't have to agree. Maybe there were 20 chosen, and, and, and the other 13 were like, nah, I want to continue preaching, or whatever they were doing. And then hands were laid on them with prayer. And I think one of the things that happens is this transfer of ownership that took place. A transfer from the heart of Jesus to the heart of Stephen. I want to ask those of you who who get up early and come here on a Sunday morning, why do you do it? Why do you get up early when it's dark outside and it's cold and miserable and rainy and you... Put on your clothes, pray, God help me please, get me through today. And you come and you set up time and time again. And you come and put on your smile and you greet and you hug and you make tea and coffee and you play in the band and you preach your heart out and you twiddle knobs in the back there and you serve with the kids. And then you have a tea afterwards, you go and pack away. And you leopard crawl home again, and next week we do it all over again. Why does that happen? One of the reasons is because you've become Jesus' man or woman. And he has transferred a heart of ownership from his heart into your heart. And when we feel personal ownership and responsibility for something, yeah, it's still hard work, but the work brings you joy and life. 
And these words uh, about the Lord Jesus had not yet been written by the author of Hebrews when, when Stephen seemed to be living them out and preaching them through his life. But we read in Hebrews 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, people who not just witness the resurrected Lord Jesus, but people who give their lives for him day in, day out, Sunday after Sunday, let us lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hey, Stephen just brings these things out in his life. Jesus had in mind as he purposefully went to the suffering, the shame, and the death on the cross, the joy of a people, his people, his bride, his church, that he was redeeming to be his for all time. And in Jesus' mind, it was worth it. And similarly, we can see of Stephen that the joy of serving Jesus' bride, Jesus' church, Jesus' people was worth going through anything that could come up, even to the point of death, not on a cross, but by stoning. God first, by serving and giving our time and our skills and our gifts and our money and our passions God draws our hearts into the center of what's going on in his church. And that's true for the local church, and that's true for the broader worldwide church as well. We had a few God Firsters join us at the, the last um, global advance conference down in Southampton. And one of them afterwards said, Do you know, I'd never considered being a church planter before, but now I do. That is Jesus transferring his heart into somebody. And when by the grace of God our hands go up and we say, Here I am, Lord, send me, things happen. Things happen. We start to see situations from a God's eye view. It's not just waiting on tables, it's serving the living God and His church, and it's worth it. And we also start to see people from a different perspective. You start to want what God wants for people. You start to get jealous for God's glory in people to be more fully revealed. Friends, when, when we come around... You know, some of the leaders, and we sound all grumpy, and we sit around and have a coffee, and we're like, come on, let's sort some stuff out, and we, we mess it up, <laughs> okay? We get, we get the words wrong, we get the tone wrong, but deep down, sometimes very deep down, <laughs> is the heart of Jesus for you, that God has placed in your leaders for you. And they burn for you to continue to grow and to live 
and to mature into the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. And as I say, we get it wrong all the time. So thank you for your grace with us. But I would say if you allow God, there are things and situations and people like that for you to spur on and to speak into and to encourage and to move on in their faith. Reality is God first is a young church. We're only like 12 years old or 13 years old. It's young in the great scheme of things. We're in a young movement of churches. So we look around and we think, what's there for me to get out of this gig? Well, actually not that much because we're young. We're still getting going. But man, with youngness comes loads of opportunity, loads of space. Loads of space and for men and women who are filled with the Holy Spirit and with wisdom to get stuck in and bring the kingdom of God closer for all of us and for the people that we're living to see come to saving faith in Jesus. My fervent prayer, God first, is, yes, that you will avoid crucifixion and stoning, okay? Know that. Or any such horrible fate. I mean, I even pray that you don't twinge a back muscle moving the seats or get a splinter in the cause of Christ, okay? I pray that for you. But I also pray, as Stephen did in following Jesus' death, that you and I would hold the course. That we would stand our ground. That we would be able to do what is necessary to live obediently with servant hearts. We can't control our endings. We can't control the end of the race, as Hebrews puts it. But we can live every day with a sense of joy that is set before us in Christ Jesus. This point of God's faithfulness. I think Stephen built his whole defense before the accusations of the Sanhedrin on the fact that God had always been with his people. And not merely in a temple or in a tent. In fact, Stephen's whole point is that, like Jesus' point, was that the people... The church, the bride, if you are believers, you are part of this new temple, so to speak, that is the eternal dwelling place of God with man. We are the new temple. We are the new tabernacle. We've said this before in our series. In fact, we read how Stephen's face shone like an angel's in the courtroom. And I alluded to the question, where have we seen this before? And the answer is obviously in Moses. Thank you, sir. Moses, his face shone after he'd been in the presence of the Lord up on the Mount Sinai. He'd been in the presence of God when he, was, he received the law on the, on the tablets. So too, Stephen's face now shone. And he was nowhere near Mount Sinai, but he's in the presence of God. And everyone could see it. Stephen points out that God has always been faithfully with his people. 
from leading Abraham out of Mesopotamia to a land that he would show them, through Joseph in Egypt, Moses through the desert, and Joshua and Caleb into the promised land, David and Solomon who finally got to build the temple. God has been faithful. And his point to the Jewish leaders was that because God had always been faithful with his people through faith, he will always be faithful to his people through faith. And the reason Stephen could go through what he went through, the reason why 10 out of the 12 apostles were also martyred, and they could go through what they went through, and the thousands upon thousands of Christian martyrs around the world over the last 2,000 years have been able to go through what they have gone through is because of their certainty in the faithfulness of God and because of the joy that is set before them to be with Christ forever. God first, as uh, believers, we can go through what we have to go through. Not by avoiding responsibility and keeping our heads down. I know that that's very uh, appealing at times but by getting stuck into the core, getting, getting right down deep into the heart of what God is up to in the local church and around the world, and by allowing God's grace to flow toward us by being together, by being in community, by worshiping together. And there are are many uncertainties, many, many. You move a family like we've got around the world, and many of you know that experience. You take big risks for God. Who knows the ending? He does. Many uncertainties, but one thing is sure. A couple of things are sure. It's going to be fun. It'll be wild. It'll be life-giving. It'll be full of joy. It'll be a God-glorifying adventure. And like Stephen, we will reach that finish line. And I have all faith that we too will see Jesus standing on the right hand of the Father welcoming us. Son, daughter, Jesus is man, Jesus is woman. Well done my faithful servant. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.